0: it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, episode 18. Happy Mother's Day to those of you who have healthy and wholesome relationships with your mother's. But for many of us, I know this day is loaded and I hope that you can find some solace here in my conversation with the wonderful Michelle Philgate. We sat down to talk about the critically acclaimed anthology that she edited based on her long-reads essay, What My Mother and I Don't Talk About, published by Simon & Schuster in 2019. Currently, Philgate is an MFA student at NYU she is the recipient of the Stein Fellowship. Her work has appeared in countless publications including the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, the Paris Review, Tin House, the Rumpus, Salon, and O, the Oprah Magazine. She teaches creative writing at NYU and is the founder of the Red Ink series. Sit back, relax, enjoy the show.
1: My first question for everyone is, why do you write? Books are what made me want to be a writer to begin with. You know, my grandmother would read stories to me, and some of my earliest memories involved The Hobbit, for instance, um, and Lord of the Rings, which was another of her favorite books, Anne of Green Gables, and Matilda by Roald Dahl. Matilda I particularly related to because it was a story of a bookworm who felt like a misfit, and... I've always felt like a misfit, like a lot of writers do. So, yeah. (laughs) So
0: you're talking a lot about kind of like fiction stories and imagination, but you're more focused in writing nonfiction, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I am actually in grad school right now at NYU for fiction, um, getting my MFA. So I love both what I have mostly written and published up until I started grad school is creative nonfiction but um over the past couple of years i've been writing a lot of fiction because of being in grad school so i am equally interested in true stories and made up stories and i'm fascinated by bl- the blurred boundaries between the two as well yeah i keep i keep bringing this up <laughs> with in
0: my interviews but it's relevant right now i just finished my first short story ever so that's I, so exciting but i like <laughs> what you say and About, you know, the the blurred lines between the two, because it's so, I mean, it's so much based in, you know, my reality, but it's still Mm -hmm. fiction. So it's interesting. For a long time, I was like, I could never, ever write fiction, but it's really similar to nonfiction
1: well and then you quickly realize there are so many people who write autofiction right and there's so many people who write from from their own experiences yeah. um and just slap the fiction label on it or, or they yeah. feel a certain amount of freedom in being able to start from the starting point of their own experience and extrapolate from there
0: <laughs> yeah i've played with i've i'm working on a memoir so i've played with that idea cuz Writing memoir is hard. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but I don't I think I'm gonna stick with nonfiction for that. So I knew you were in grad school, but I didn't realize it was for
1: fiction. Yeah. That's yep. cool. And I teach creative nonfiction. I've taught creative nonfiction for years now. This past fall at NYU I taught a an introduction to creative writing, uh poetry and fiction class at NYU. So
0: nice. Yeah. So I know You recently, or somewhat recently, moved
1: out to Florence, Italy. Yeah, that was a fellowship I got through NYU uh, where graduate students can apply to go work on their thesis overseas and do some research. So I was there when this pandemic started, (laughs) and unfortunately, I had to come home early, cut my time there short because of uh, the lockdown and the travel ban and things starting to get progressively worse and worse. So,
0: yeah. Well, what was the experience like before all that
1: shit set in? <laughs> <laughs> before that, it was a dream come true. There's something about, I feel like it's cliche to say, but there's just really something about the Tuscan sun. And, you know, I know under the Tuscan sun, I think that's the end of it, <laughs> right? Is a famous book I have not read and a movie. But there's something really um, heavenly about the quality of the light there, even in the wintertime. It's just so bold and beautiful. And it's bold and soft at the same time. Yeah. I, I think that's the best way of putting it. And so NYU's campus is actually a villa. And it's you walk onto this villa and it's a, a movie set. I yeah. couldn't believe it was real. <laughs> right. and it was absolutely like the most (laughs) gorgeous place I've ever been to in my life. And then I just love I I made so many great Italian friends living in Florence. Um, I love the culture there. I love the food. I love how warm people are and how open people are and how important conversation and art and food are there so I just really felt like it was an incredible opportunity I was
0: in Italy two summers in a row but a couple summers ago I I went up into like the hills of Tuscany for a week by myself and I wrote this essay on Tuscany's apparatic magic and like oh I want to read this it's 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 pretty. It's one of my favorite things that I've written, but there is like a totally different energy there. I feel like my best writing happened there.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yes. incredible. Absolutely, it's magic.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I am Italian, and I was planning to go to Italy this summer to get dual citizenship, and then all of oh. this happened. Yeah.
1: Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, so, can you get that? Do you have like? Is your um were your grandparents born there? Yeah. My, my great grandparents,
0: but you can have any male ancestor from Italy and you can get dual citizenship. That's amazing. Wow. So, but that kind of got, you know, postponed (laughs) in the future though. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. All right. So your, anthology, What My Mother and I Don't Talk About, which my mother asked me yesterday, who are you interviewing tomorrow? What's the book? And I showed her. I was like, you would probably be into this. Like, <laughs> We talk now, but it's still, you know, it's it's still a tough relationship, I would say. So anyway, you wrote an essay of the same name, which was published in Long Reads about two years ago? Uh, October 2017 is when it Rears? came out.
1: Okay. Yeah. How did the essay... Give birth to the book. The essay is something that took me over a decade to write. I started it when I was an undergraduate at the University of New Hampshire. And when I first started writing the essay, I really thought I was just writing about the abuse from my stepfather. But it took me many, many years and therapy and finding my voice as a writer to realize that what I was actually trying to write about was the fracture that this caused in my relationship with my mom. And that's where the real pain was from. And that was really what haunted me. I published that essay in Long Reads. It was supposed to come out around Thanksgiving because people have to go home and deal with their families at Thanksgiving. And my editor thought that would be a good time for it. But the Harvey Weinstein story broke and Me Too moved took off. And right away when that happened, my editor was like, we're moving up the pub date. We're going to publish this now because it's very relevant. So it was shared during a time when everyone was really starting to talk about, about abusive situations, right? And it went viral. It was shared by some of my favorite writers on social media. Rebecca Solnit shared it, Lydia Yukinovich, Anne Lamont. So I started to hear from so many people who didn't just relate to my story, but also the the title of the essay, What My Mother and I Don't Talk About. And it quickly dawned on me that so many people had a story about what they don't talk about with their mom. The idea for the anthology came together almost right away once the piece was published just because of the feedback I was getting from so many people.
0: I have an art from AWP Portland. Oh, I don't know if you remember that. I was in the Mother Wound
1: panel. Yes. Yeah. That so was, you, you asked a question, right? And I gave you the, I can't remember how that happened.
0: Yeah. You were like giving out <laughs> copies to people. Yeah. That so it's like, all right, I'll definitely ask. <laughs> so that was the first time. I mean, I have this story, right? About what my mother and I don't talk about. Like that is what my memoir is kind of about. So I, I mean, and you know how packed that panel was. Yes. But I remember just feeling so seen in that, in that experience. anthology building process like you reach out to the readers do you
1: there are a lot of anthologies where people put a call out for submissions I did not want to do that in this case because I knew I'd be flooded with responses and it would be a lot to sort through yeah and it was already such a difficult subject that I I wanted to have complete control over who I had in the anthology. And I wanted a mixture of people from different backgrounds and a mixture of writers who were already well-known and writers at all stages in their careers. So I reached out to writers I know because I've been in the industry for a long time. I was on the board of the National Book Critics Circle for many years. And I also ran events at indie bookstores. And I have my own literary series here in Brooklyn called Red Ink, which focuses on women writers past and present. And so I've just constantly been not just writing over these years, but also interviewing authors in my work as a critic. So I had kind of built up this pool already of writers I had in mind to ask. Mm. But it's not so easy to approach people and be like, hey, do you have a story to write about what you don't talk about (laughs) with your mom? Yeah, And it was a fascinating experience because what I realized, what I learned in this process is that, some people who thought they were ready to write about what they don't talk about with their mothers um, realized very quickly, actually, I'm not ready to write this right now. And it should have made sense to me from the get go, because I myself, as I said, took over a decade to write my own piece, I approached all of the writers or most of the writers for the anthology in, I think, February or March, right after I got the book deal. And they only had until I think September or October to turn the their, their essays into me. So that's really not a long time at all to write about such a fraught topic. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Also, while juggling all their own book projects. Um, That was a really interesting experience. And it was also really amazing to get to work with some of my favorite writers. Um, I also found it refreshing that like I myself write messy first drafts. And it's nice to see that, like, you know, some, even no matter how famous you are, sometimes you need to write more than one draft of something after you turn it in. It's not, you know, it's, yeah, it's not like you become a famous writer, and you're just going to spit out perfect pieces that right. sometimes there's a process to it. And okay. there's always going to be a process to it. So. Yeah, <laughs> Thank God.
0: Um, <laughs> so you were their editor, but you also had an editor.
1: Yes. So it was a it was a tag team thing. My editor Karen Marcus is amazing at Simon and Schuster. So she, I went through like first rounds of edits with the writers, and then she would also give a round of edits. So we were collaborating together. I couldn't have done this without her. And I also had my dear friend Lauren LeBlanc, who's an amazing. Writer and editor. She used to be a senior nonfiction editor at Guernica magazine. I hired her for some additional rounds of edits for some of the essays as well. Because in some cases, what I learned is that sometimes you need a third set of eyes on on, on things. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about some of the essays in the collection. What, uh, I mean, there's such a wide range of experiences in this book, but like, what, which, could you like most relate to or which were most surprising or oh. or any other thoughts or feelings <laughs> i mean i this morning i i actually got the audiobook as well i listened to um her body my body this morning mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh my goodness like <laughs> i feel like i've been reading a lot about borderline personality disorder lately mm-hmm. but that was that one was tough
1: yeah, yeah, that one very much lives in the body, right? The body yeah. is, is as the title suggests, but the the writing is so embodied on the page there too. It's physical; you feel it as you're reading it. Yeah, um, that actually is one of my favorite. favorites. I mean, actually, I can't say that I have a favorite because I really like. It's like picking your choosing your children, you know. Yeah. I I love all of them, but that's one of my favorite pieces to talk about because of what happened the writer Naomi Munavira she was really like nervous about publishing it without sharing it with her parents first Uh and so right before we were going to have the galleys printed she sent it to her parents to read and she received the best possible email she could receive from her parents in response to that where her mother said that she was really proud of her and that this essay was going to help a lot of people so we ended up publishing that as a postscript yeah to the essay. that was
0: very heartwarming because like i mean you always think you're gonna hurt especially mothers you think you're gonna hurt them so much and then their reaction can be so unexpected
1: it was truly unexpected. And it to me, that made the entire book worth it because it led to healing. You know, Naomi talked about how that's like one of the most important things that's ever happened to her. And so that just shows the power of telling stories, the power of breaking the silence as, you know, the subtitle of the book is 15 Writers Break the Silence. So right. it, it just shows how important it can be to get these stories out there, right? And not every piece in the book, as you know, Like, not every piece is dealing with really depressing, fraught topics. Some of them are, like, the the piece that ends the whole book is very hopeful. Leslie Jameson's essay about her mom and trying to realize who her mother was before she became her mom by reading the self-published, or I'm sorry, not self-published, unpublished manuscript uh, that her mother's first husband wrote based on their marriage. So there, there's a wide spectrum of pieces in here. Another one that surprised me is my friend Dylan Landis, who's in the book. I couldn't, I couldn't believe how perfect that draft came in. I think there was like pretty much no edits to that piece. Really? And it really, you know, she's mostly known for her fiction. She's a wonderful, wonderful fiction writer. Mm-hmm. And that essay, when when I first read it, I said to her. Dylan, this reminds me of one of my favorite writers, Joanne Beard. And she said, I'm so glad you said that because she was kind of a model for me in writing this essay. She's someone whose who's, who's work I really admire. And so that was this moment where I just remember reading the piece when it came in and shaking because it was so good. Like, And I studied with Joanne at Tin House for a, uh, the summer workshop one summer. So nice. I actually workshopped the essay that is in this book with Joanne
0: so i was surpri- kind of surprised at the range and how they weren't all because at that panel at awp in portland i was like oh my god this is gonna be my my mother wound bible or whatever but it's it's not all trauma and i love melissa's essay
1: oh yeah
0: it's beautiful it's really beautiful and it features Italy, which is close to both of our hearts. But <laughs> yes. I can't imagine how she wrote that in such a short amount of time.
1: I know. <laughs> She's incredible. I love every single essay she writes. She really is one of the best contemporary essayists in my opinion. Yeah, I, agree. Um, I just, I, I i think it's it's stunning how she looks at her relationship with her psychotherapist mom through the prism of mythology. I found that such a powerful tool, right? Because we do think, some of us do think about our mothers in terms of mythology, right? Like we, yeah. <laughs> even stories about them from before they became our moms, like just, they, they take on this sort of larger than life role in our, in our lives. And even for those of us who, you know, people who don't really know their moms that well, that can lead to its own set of mythologies, right? Like wondering, wondering about the person.
0: Yeah. Like I recently went because quarantine, I like organized all my keepsakes, like photographs and letters and I even have like old notes from high school and stuff, (laughs) but I found an envelope full of letters from my mother to her aunt. Uh, She, so we're from the East coast. I grew up in New Jersey, but she had moved. My mother had moved out to Idaho Mm -hmm. when she was like 19 with her new husband. Uh, He was in the air force, but I somehow have a hold of these letters that she wrote to her aunt and it really was the first and only glimpse into who she was as a kid so to speak or before mm-hmm. and i've had a fraught relationship but but it was kind of crazy to get that glimpse i mean it was nothing too crazy but my mother's an interesting character she's she kind of lives like she's under quarantine all the time she doesn't go out a lot she's Mm -hmm. scared of a lot of things you can't get a lot out of her as far as stories and history and likes and dislikes and so it's hard to know her and since i've been rereading the anthology and i found those letters i've been having these crazy dreams about i mean they've been pretty dark I think a lot of us are having (laughs) dark dreams right now. Yeah, but, like, last night I had this dream. We were at some big dinner in a big restaurant, and it was really physically dark, like, low lights. The main theme was, like, my mother had gotten to this point where I don't know if I had pressed her and pressed her and pressed her, but it came out like, I never loved you kind of thing. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, like... This is not accurate to life, but like my unconscious is clearly trying to process some things. Yeah. But my father was in the dream too, and they separated when I was in my mid-teens. And then the dream took on like this theme of you know why didn't you do anything, dad kind of thing, and kind it was kind of parallel. I mean, I don't want to compare this to you know the sexual abuse you went through or anything, but. Like your mother not believing you. It was like my dad didn't believe me, that my mom didn't love me, and it was crazy, the dream.
1: <laughs> um, oh,
0: gosh. But it's
1: weird how our subconscious can work,
0: right? <laughs> I know. I mean, I've been processing the relationship for the past two years writing this memoir, but I don't think you ever really finished processing it. Your grandmother you mentioned that you used to walk by the lake, but this is your grandmother that
1: passed away recently. It is. My Mimo. Yeah. The book is dedicated to my grand both of my grandmothers who I'm really close with, Mimo and Nana. And Mimo passed away last July, so that's been a really difficult year for me. Like, it's been weird that it was the best professional year of my life and the worst personal year of my life. My uncle died in March. I had to leave AWP early, actually. Uh, And then my grandmother died. And, you know, publishing this book about my mom, <laughs> Like it's just been a heavy, yeah. heavy 12 months. So oh, well. I remember you having to leave early. But I remember
0: a lot of weren't you on your book tour when she passed away?
1: Actually, it happened. I was in Paris, I was giving a, a talk to the NYU low res MFA program. And she was hospitalized. And I came back from Paris. And I saw her and she died after I got home. I feel like she was waiting for me yeah Um, yeah
0: that's beautiful and painful yes you have definitely had to go through a lot yeah the past year were your grandmother's kind of mother figures for you absolutely
1: yes they I, I I've lived with both of them over the years um even as an adult once I graduated college I would commute into New York City for a while um and you know, took turns living with them. They are both absolutely, Mimo was and Nana is, uh, they're two of the strongest women I've ever known, or people. My Nana raised my mom's mom raised seven kids, and she's just one of the most loving, also stylish people I know. She's about to turn 90 this this May, and I, I can't even believe that, because she really has the energy of, like, a 40-year-old It's kind of crazy. <laughs> um, and Nemo was the person who made me into a writer like I said you know walking around that lake with her and she you know how like I hope that everybody has like a special person at one point in their life and she was my person like without a doubt like she's the greatest love of my life like Uh just my best friend yeah (laughs) really just I even when I was little people used to say I was a mini (laughs) Mimo. (laughs) <laughs> we just had such a special relationship. And she was a concert pianist and raised four boys, mostly on her own because my grandfather died really young. She was incredible. And I I really, really miss her every single day. The lock screen on my iPhone is a picture of her walking in those woods. Mm. So I see her every time I go to open my phone and it's the desktop on my computer. Mm. And there's not a, a minute that I don't think about her.
0: Yeah. My paternal grandmother died when I was really young, <clears throat> but I do have memories of her. I feel like if she hadn't passed away, that that our relationship sounds like it would have been similar to the, to the yours with Mimo. Um, oh, how but, old
1: were you when she passed?
0: God, I feel terrible saying I'm not sure, but I mean, six or seven, five, six years old my father's side of the family is very story-based and like i remember having i have such the the memories i do have of her are really warm just warm like she had little nicknames for me she Mm. also they had five kids which was kind of a lot of kids yes (laughs) Um, (laughs) and then their dad i mean they were grown by the time she passed except for my uncle matt who my uncle Matt is my person. We would, we, he was the one we would take, take walks. He was born a lot later. He was the happy mm-hmm. accident and we would take long walks down the railroad tracks as far as we could go. And I felt like I was, you know, walking into the next state, but we had only walked like a mile, you know? <laughs> so oh <it> was, yeah. <laughs> um,
1: but felt Like an adventure. <laughs> yeah.
0: But I, it's crazy. I have memories of her. I just, I wonder what, what it would have been like to, to really know her. That could be a good essay. Yeah. And then my other grandmother's still kicking. 85, Italian, crazy <laughs> Italian
1: grandmother. Oh, does she love to cook? Yeah. The stereotypical Italian grandmother. That's oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. My mom will always send me those silly, like, Italian family memes about food, and it's real.
1: Oh, yeah. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm not Italian, but my two of my mom's sisters married Italian men. So I've Mm -hmm. grown up eating amazing Italian food at family gatherings. Yeah. (laughs) I was so
0: jealous of you all through those uh, Instagram posts of food and
1: everything while you're in Italy. Oh, I want to go back. I know. I miss it. I really, really miss it.
0: (laughs) Forever. I want to go back forever when this is all over. (laughs) (laughs) How could you ever get tired
1: of it? You can't. You really can't. Yeah. Are you going back, you think? Oh, definitely. I mean, I don't know when, but I really fell in love with Florence. Mm. Um, have you spent time in Florence? Have you been there? Yeah, I
0: was there for a couple of days before I went up into the hills. I went to a little area called Pion Disco. And mm-hmm. uh, it was... Have you seen the movie... Um, Call me by your name. Yeah, I
1: loved that yep. movie. Is that where it's set? It
0: could have been. I mean, uh-huh. that that's that's the energy. It was like this old, old, old farmhouse in the hills. There's no like road up there. Like you have to take like walk from in town up this dirt road, and it was like something out of a movie. It was unreal. That sounds perfect. It was, <laughs> yeah. <to be> <laughs> so I would just like walk into town and get fresh produce and meat and cheese and like sit out in the sun it was like july oh god
1: so have you spent uh, much time in these I have only spent a little bit of time there, so I went backpacking a few summers ago with my boyfriend and started out in Italy, and we spent a night in Naples because I really wanted to go to Pompeii because when I was a kid, I was obsessed with Pompeii, so we did that, and I highly recommend going, but I don't recommend doing what we did, which is taking the night train from Naples to (laughs) Torino. Um, with no shower you know after walking around in the dusty hot Pompeii all day yes. <laughs> it was an experience I went
0: um, to Pompeii the last trip and it, again July it was yep. so hot <laughs> yes very very hot yeah no
1: shade M- not much shade there
0: <laughs> no but
1: incredible nonetheless yes yeah and um one of my favorite parts of that whole trip is we went to the Amalfi coast Mm. to this unbelievable hotel that's on the water all of the rooms open up out into balconies that are on the ocean and (laughs) overlooking the ocean and the food the family like makes food from the like that from veggies that they grow themselves like the food is just on, gonna, oh my God. I'm going to need the name of that place. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's called Hotel Scoglio. All right. In Mazza Lebrense. It's right what, across from Capri. Yeah. That's what I want my life to be. Like, me too. Right. Writing
0: <laughs> on the Italian coast for yes. the rest of my life, maybe. Yeah. Yes. Let's make it happen. <laughs> um, what do you think? I mean, I know you mentioned the light and the sun in Tuscany, but I kind of had this feeling like a more creative drive in Europe, period. Yes. What do you think that is? It. is? I've been finding it really hard to name because I've started essays. I have travel essays going about like the sense of place and sense of identity and a sense of, I don't know, like uprooting and how it changes your perspective.
1: It totally does. I want to be careful not to romantic romanticize it because I think that no matter where you live you're going to encounter you know yourself and your problems wherever you are and that's something I've definitely learned with traveling but something that I have felt personally an observation I've made when I've been in Europe and particularly in Italy is that I feel like there's such a focus on ambition in America with writers Mm -hmm. there's like ambition is just a huge part of our culture and to the point where like you meet someone and you say what do you do like in i live in new york city right and like at literary parties like the first thing people ask is what do you do right um in italy i feel like there's not i don't know if you felt this way too but i feel like it's more about how do you live? Not what do you do? Who are you? Who are you? And what do you like to create? And what makes you who you are? And I, I feel like it's not about like one upmanship. And it's not about trying to just constantly be producing, 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 like there's there's more of there's more energy there to just slow down. Yeah, like a leisurely
0: you know, create create
1: for creation's sake kind of Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's something about being surrounded by, you know, Renaissance art, by stuff that's been there for so long. Um Well, I wonder <laughs> I wonder
0: if it felt like that during the Renaissance though, because like, you know, all the greats like doing making art and inventing from sunup to sundown. I bet it felt a little more competitive. I'm sure. Yes. Well, yeah. (laughs) yeah, Now it's like, yeah, it's like a leisurely thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think that in terms of like friends of mine who are expats who have moved to Europe, they, they don't seem to be as like focused on the, the business side, like, I, I think sometimes we're focused too much on, like, the business side of things. What does, you know, where where have we been published? You know, how often have we been p- published? And and I think, yeah, it, it's important that as a writer, you know, you, you put your work out there, that you get published. But when I studied with Joanne Beard, one of the things she said to me that will always stick with me is, that it's n- you can't control the business side of things as an artist and as as a writer and the only thing you you can have control over is the craft right and she's absolutely right and so i observed people who were just really attentive to the craft in italy while i was there like a friend of mine who's an amazing d- uh, clothes designer and artist and she's just always making things yeah. and it's always so cool and it's I, I don't know I again like I said I don't want to romanticize this because I think it's easy from you know me being an outsider or a foreigner to see the way that people are and to be like saying this is how I see it right um so I'm saying it being aware that I am a foreigner making these observations. Right. But that's just kind of what I observe.
0: Well, I wonder too how much that has to do with the difference in the socio political situations in America versus Europe. Like, I wonder if it's I need to get published or if it's I need to make money. You know, I don't have <laughs> health insurance or, you know, yeah. the things that are given in many European countries that aren't here. Like, if you're trying to make a and living out of writing here it's very difficult
1: oh yeah a lot of people myself included are not full-time writers you have jobs that, you know I teach writing because that's right. something else that I'm really good at but it's and it's something that allows me to pay my bills right. <laughs> have
0: you heard my next interview is uh my mentor and she's a writer she lives in Athens Adrienne Kalfapalou have you heard of her no, I haven't. Yeah. What What? is she? Um, she was originally a poet. I mean, she's still a poet, but she has moved it towards uh, a lot more essays. But she, thank God she was my mentor because, she, again, like the same thing. No, no real focus on the business part of it. It's all about the craft and it's, it was a blessing to work with her. But I feel like that might come out of her Greek roots in a way.
1: It's possible. Mm-hmm. I want to read her work now.
0: She's incredible. <laughs> yeah. I'll send some links. Please do. So what's next for you? Are you still, is your MFA still
1: going? Yeah. So um, I still have two classes to finish um, before I graduate. So I'll either graduate in the fall or the spring, depending on if I decide to go full time or part time for yeah. the rest of my time there um but it's been a really incredible experience so far um i've had some amazing professors including um darren strauss and um hannah tinty hannah tinty is in addition to being an incredible writer is uh, the founder of one story magazine Mm -hmm. that publishes a single short story each each time um, Mazamin Geste, Julie Oringer, and Hari Kunzru. I I've I've studied with so many incredible minds. Yeah. So that's been really expansive for me as a writer. Um to to be just deeply immersed in studying the art of fiction. And I truly believe, even if I do end up mostly writing nonfiction, that it's making me a better writer, no matter what. Uh, um, yeah, I could see that.
0: And I did I didn't realize that until recently actually. And in my program, I graduated in January, but where did you go? Um, I just, I went to a low res MFA at, uh, Regis university in Denver. It's called the mile high MFA. Um, Fantastic. I was considering low res before I did this too, but yeah. Yeah. Can you do? Are you open to talking at all about your thesis?
1: It's changing, so I feel like I'm not going to talk about it right now, just because I don't want (laughs) to. I can say that um, at the moment, it's it's short stories that have a theme, but that's that's all I can say. That's (laughs) fair. That's fair. I figured I'd ask. Cool. Any other next steps as far as writing? I have a lot of essays I want to write. I seem to keep writing over and over again about grief um, for obvious reasons yeah. ever since my grandmother died. So I think I have some essays that I need to write about about Memo. And that's really hard. Uh, but I know that I have to do that. And I've been... Re- I've been working on one in particular, so we'll see how that goes. For me, I'm I'm a slow writer with the stuff that is tough to write about. I believe in taking your time and um, not forcing it out of you, although I am thankful to my good friend, the writer Taylor Larson, for like essentially locking me in her parents living room um when we went to the cape to cape cod together um and forcing me to like finish the essay that led to this book because i i don't know if I would have finished it without her being like, I'm taking away your phone. You're sitting in this room and you have to write. I meet friends like that. God damn. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it was, I was really annoyed with her at first. And then I was like, thank you. This is amazing. This is important. Like she lit a candle for me. She's like, we're going to make this like a ritual, like a, you know, we're going to make this a nice space. (laughs) And sometimes that's what you need. So I need more of that right now. I need to be locked in a room. Although I, (laughs) <laughs> ironically I am I'm quarantined and you know I always thought to myself oh I just I want to be able to like just stay home and read and write oh my and God. now that I'm in that situation I'm like I want to be like running around in the park and doing this and that. And, you know, so the grass is always greener. (laughs)
0: Before, right before this happened. So I'm an elementary school teacher and we were coming up on spring break right before this happened. And same thing, I was like, oh man, summer's going to be awesome. I'll rewrite my memoir. That's when it's going to get done. I just need time, Mm -hmm. free time. it's here and I haven't written a damn thing.
1: No, I mean, be kind to yourself, though. I keep telling uh, another writer friend of mine, like, it's, it's okay. We're we're going through what we're going through collectively right now is trauma and grief in this country, right in the world with, yeah. this, with this crisis. And so I do think that like, sometimes you just need to Take notes, like I, I write in my journal, you know, and I think sometimes you need to keep track of how you're feeling and be okay with the fact that it will lead to something down the road. It might not be might not be able to write what you need to write right now, but it will come, but at the same time, I'm gonna force myself to do what I have my students do, which is the Pomodoro technique, where you set an alarm and you write for like twenty five minutes and you only write, you can't check your phone or the internet during that time. Um, and there's something about that concentrated burst of time that like really allows you to be creative. Yeah. So, and it's doable. It's not overwhelming. I should try It's that. not overwhelming. I think the, the idea of like, I've had teachers who are like, you need to write three hours a day and I'm, and that's just totally, no, I, I get res- resistant to the, you have to, the prescriptive, like, this is what you have to do. You know, I think, yeah. or I think should, I'm always writing in my head in some ways. And then like, sometimes that happens like I'll, I'll sit down and it will like all come out in like at least a messy draft like will all come out of me at once well
0: mm-hmm. i saw a instagram story yesterday from tkara madden of all her sticky notes and note cards and i was like yes i don't have that i don't even have that though i was like god damn it am
1: i even a writer like <laughs> of course you are everyone has their different methods work. you know i don't
0: work very hard <laughs> oh, <my God.
1: laughs>
0: Uh, I've overcome with the shoulds right now. You yeah, should, you should, you
1: should. I think it's easy to feel that way. But, you know, I keep going back to Joanne Beard, but she is one of my favorite writers of all time. And she didn't publish her first book until her 40s. And she's only published two books so far. And so I'm much more into the idea of slow writing and not having to churn books out all the time and, ha- mm-hmm. and write some really like, If I could write one good book, one book that is as good as the boys in my youth, I would be happy. Yeah, I'm gonna try the 25
0: minutes, maybe even today.
1: I think you should. (laughs) I'll join you. I'm
0: gonna do that later.
1: All right. So let's both do that. Okay.
0: (laughs) I'm also gonna send you my Tuscany essay. I would love to read that. I think that's the thought that I, that left my head earlier. You were talking about how, when you, when you, you know, when you're writing in Europe in the middle of the Tuscan hills, your shit is still with you. That's what my essay is kind of about actually. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to read that. (laughs) Cool. That would be an honor. Well, thank you for sitting down with me. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. I can't wait to see what's next for you. I sometimes think there should be a what my mother and I don't talk about too.
1: (laughs) People have asked me. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I've definitely as I've toured around the country for the book, like I've heard and I've also just gotten emails from strangers. A lot of people have said they have their own story they could share. Um and I'm hoping that's what this book does is leads to conversation starters. For for sure. Yeah. It's good stuff. Well, thanks. (laughs) Thanks again. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day.